Um, after which, Christine has finished reading. Andy's going to come up and uh, speak to us. The first reading tonight is taken from Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 to 17, which can be found on page 988 in the Bibles in front of you. Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things that he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants? You have ordained praise. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. The second reading is taken from the second book of Corinthians, chapter 2, verses 14 to 16 which can be found on page 1159. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ, and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are, perish who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are the smell of death. To the other, the fragrance of life. And who is equal to such a task? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Christina. So bright up here, I can't see anybody out there, but I assume you're there. Anyway, I'll speak out as if you were. Let's pray first of all. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for the cross of Jesus. We're aware that it's a bewildering reality in many ways. Uh, there are so many aspects of it that leave us uh, searching and questioning. So many aspects of it that give us life and freedom. We pray this evening that you will help us as we look into it further. Help us to understand uh, more deeply uh, what it means and, and how it transforms our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been uh, for uh, a number of weeks looking at the subject of the cross of Christ, uh, by which we mean the death of Jesus uh, on the cross. And tonight we come to this title, The Victory of the Cross. And immediately that title just sort of throws us right into the middle of the, 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 the strange conflicting ideas that are, that are at play when we begin to talk about the cross of Jesus. How can such an ugly, messy, cruel event be a victory? How can it be? And that's uh, just what I, I want to try and tease out a little bit uh, this evening. In a way, we just need to take our story a little bit further back, uh, a few weeks in the life of Jesus, back to a place called Caesarea Philippi, which is right up in the north of Israel. Even today, it's right on the border with, with Syria in the far north. And it was there that uh, Peter confessed when asked by Jesus, who do you think I am? He said, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And at that moment, even though Peter barely understood uh, what those words meant, he was identifying Jesus, not just as a prophet, not just as a rabbi, not just as a wise man, not just as someone to, to follow and learn from, but actually as God's intrusion into human history, God's provision, someone sent by God to be uh, a, a significant and changing and saving presence in, in human history. And Peter hardly understood anything of what that meant, but that's what he was saying. And Jesus immediately says, uh, but I want you to understand this, that this Christ, this Messiah, this one whom God has sent into the world, he will suffer and he will die. He will be rejected by the leaders of the people. So right at the outset, Jesus is saying uh, this uh, figure, this identity that you've discerned in me of the one that God has sent into the world to represent and be God's initiative into the world, actually the story is about rejection and actually, it's about death and suffering. So how does all that work? That's what we're going to try and sort of tease out a little bit this evening. And it's not the easiest of tasks. So we move forward now to the story that Christina read to us. Jesus, from that moment, was on his way to Jerusalem. And from that moment, began to talk about this strange thing. That God's Messiah, God's Christ, the one who was God's... Uh, gift to humanity was actually on a downward path to rejection and death. 
And eventually they come up through the desert from Jericho and they, they come to the crest of the hill. Some of you will have been to Israel and you would have seen how this is. You come to the crest of the hill, the Mount of Olives, and you look down over the Mount of Olives and there's the city of Jerusalem ahead, ahead of you. Jesus was there at a decisive time. He'd chosen it deliberately. It was the time of Passover. It was the time when Jews came from not only all over Israel, but all over the Mediterranean world to be present in Jerusalem to celebrate how God had delivered his people, brought them out of Egypt, made them a people, and given them their own land to live in. And Passover was the time uh, that they celebrated that. And they, picked, they came in their, in their thousands. It said that a quarter of a million people could be in Jerusalem at that time. A buzz with expectation and a buzz with uh, all the anticipation. Would God deliver his people a second time? He'd brought them out of slavery. Now they were slaves again, if you like. They were living under Roman oppression. Would God deliver them again? Or was this just ancient history? So it was a very uh, f uh, fragile and uh, energized atmosphere. It was very uh, febrile in a, in a way. And Jesus chooses that moment to enter Jerusalem, and he does so by means of a, a kind of acted parable. He recruits a, a donkey to his task. And in so doing, he is enacting uh, a prophecy from the Old Testament, one that's just slightly askew, one that challenges what's happening around him. It's from the little book in the Old Testament called Zechariah, and it's chapter 9 and verse 9 if you want to check it up later on. And there the prophet says uh, to his people, look, the time is coming when God will send his king back to Jerusalem, the Christ, the Messiah, his chosen one. God will send his king back to Jerusalem, and he will come riding on a donkey, not on a war horse, but on a donkey. Now, in those days, people rode donkeys, and it wasn't quite the, the rather ludicrous image that, that we might have in mind or that Pete Sheath has in mind. It, it was a legitimate way of traveling. But it was not for kings. It was not for warriors. It was not for rulers. It was a humble and peaceful means of transport. And the passage says... God's king will come, but he will come riding on a, on a donkey. He will come in gentleness and peace. And the next verse, actually, which people would have known, goes on to say, not that he will restore the fortunes of the people, not that he will restore the fortunes of Israel and make them a great nation again, but actually he will bring peace to all the nations. And that is the message that Jesus is trying to give uh, a visual expression to as he rides into Jerusalem on this donkey. There is a message in what he does. But around him there's mayhem. Around him there's all kinds of stuff going on. The disciples themselves are bewildered and confused. They joined up with this rabbi. In time they began to think that he might be the one who would bring deliverance to Israel. And then there was this bewildering stuff about rejection and death and all kinds of stuff that they really found difficult to take. And so they didn't know whether they were on the up or on, or on the way down. They didn't know whether this was a moment of celebration or a moment to be really anxious and fearful. 
They didn't know what was going on. And the crowd around them were, were playing, they had their agenda as well. They were hoping for uh, someone to change the situation, some kind of catalyst for revolution, somebody who would stir things up and turn the nation's fortunes around and create a, a, a whole new situation. Some of them perhaps really didn't know what was going on, but it was a crowd and it was a time to celebrate. No CCTV to see who was there, so you could shout, you could shout whatever you liked, and no one would know you could slink away afterwards. The crowd are there to celebrate. They throw, put palm, uh, palm branches on the ground. They put their very clothes on the ground as a sign of welcome for, for the king who is coming. But what are they expecting? What are they looking for? Are they, do they see the acted parable that Jesus is, is carrying out before them? What kind of king are they expecting? So there's mayhem around, noise, confusion. All kinds of people with all kinds of agendas. And mixed in with the crowd, there would have been soldiers, and there would have been spies, there would have been those who were just watching what was going on, those who were really anxious that this was actually, this could spiral out of control. This could be something really dangerous, and the delicate balance between the, the Jews and the Romans could be overthrown, and the delicate balance between church and state, as you might say, might, might collapse, and there might, might be trouble. Jesus sweeps on into Jerusalem and sweeps on into the temple where you might think he'd come in there and he'd do the right thing. He'd pray, he'd stop and pray. In fact, he's on fire at this point. And in the temple he sees not a place of prayer, but actually a place where trade is going on. In order to enable people to sacrifice, they have to change money, they have to get the special Temple money, money has to change hands. It's a place of greed and transactions and commerce. It's not a place of prayer at all. And, and Jesus denounces it all and says, look, this place which is supposed to be a place of prayer has just become a place of trade and commerce. And he overturns the tables and scatters the money and there's mayhem in the temple as well. This is a day of chaos and confusion and bewildered ideas and who knows what's going on. And then at the end of that, we read that the children who were in the temple forecourt began to sing praises as well, to sing praises to God's coming king. And as the religious leaders and the political leaders uh, say, just what do you think you're doing? Overturning uh, the tables, overturning the worship of this place, causing mayhem in, in Jerusalem here. What do you think you're doing? And Jesus says, the only people here who are speaking with honesty and integrity and sincerity are the children. Everyone else is fighting for their agendas, their visions for this, that, and the other. There's only one way this is going to end, isn't there? It's going to end badly. It's going to end in death. And it does. This story is very ambiguous, and I'd like you this evening to just see all the different levels that are going on there as Jesus tries to proclaim what he is about in a kind of acted parable but around him, there's the seething ambitions and the seething hopes and aspirations of, of all the people who are present in Jerusalem at that time. And Jesus says, it's actually only the children who seem to act with sincerity and truth here. So how can this messy, tangled situation, which ends in an unjust trial and a and a bloody crucifixion, how can it be a victory? 
How can it be that the Messiah, the Christ, the one whom God himself has sent into the world can bring victory out of this tangled situation? Well, we'll be examining that. We'll be looking at that from different angles in the week ahead. And I encourage you to read these stories in the week and to perhaps come on Good Friday to uh, our services then and certainly to join us on Easter Sunday because we'll be exploring how this turns into the most extraordinary victory. What I want to say this evening is just simply this. That that story is not one simply that is about a miscarriage of justice long ago, but it is something that continues to be true through human history because this man, because Jesus, is not simply a rabbi, a teacher, someone who was significant at one point in history, but he is actually God's provision for human beings at all points of history. And just as he made his way on that donkey through the seething crowds of Jerusalem on that, on that day long ago. So in a way, if you can hear what I'm saying here, he makes his way through our world as well, proclaiming who he is in countless different ways. And he evokes the same responses in our world. Our world crucifies him as much as the world of the first century did. He is rejected and despised as much today as he was then. And still... The victory is there. What is this victory? I want to go right to the heart of the matter here. When Jesus died on the cross, he was not simply the victim of human injustice, human hatred, he wasn't simply there because of the fickleness of the crowds. He wasn't simply there uh, because of the hatred of the rulers of the day. He was there by his own free will, and he was there by God's choice and calling. And that death on the cross was, in fact, a confrontation with the powers that control, deceive, and corrupt our world. This may be the kind of language you find strange, but I want you to, to grapple with it. I want you to try and get your heads around it a bit. The Christian claim is that that death on the cross was not simply a tragic accident of history, but was actually a decisive intervention of God in which the powers of evil, Satan himself, the powers of sin and evil and death were confronted and overcome by someone who represents us as, as, uh, as a perfect human being and who is also the presence of God there. And that on the cross, the powers of evil did their very worst to crush, destroy, and overwhelm this human life and failed. He entered into death for us, and as we will celebrate next Sunday, he came through on the other side in, into a, a greater and a transformed kind of life. This is what we need to grasp, that there was on the cross the most extraordinary victory over Satan himself, and I use that word deliberately. We don't use it a lot. Uh, it's not fashionable in our world, 
but our world is in the grip of evil powers. And the cross is the place where those powers are broken. And I want to say to you this evening that as a result of the victory that's been won on the cross, there is power in the name of Jesus, there is power in the blood of Jesus, there is power in the cross of Jesus, and that Christians are able to walk in that power and to bring into our world the healing and the restoring and reconciling love of God. Not in their own strength or wisdom, but because those very powers have been broken. And when men and women walk in faith and in the love that Christ has given them, claiming the power of the name of Jesus and the power of the blood of Jesus and the power of the cross of Jesus, acts of deliverance happen. In conclusion, I'd just like to point you to that second short passage we read because Paul says there's another procession that's taking place in history, not just, as it were, he doesn't refer to the Palm Sunday procession, but it's another procession. And he takes as his, as his image for this the, uh, the fact, the, the practice that could happen in the Roman world, not often, but occasionally in the wake of a great military victory, uh, something that was really uh, an immense uh, victory over Rome's enemies, that the general would be granted a triumph. And a triumph was a grand procession through Rome by the general, celebrating his victory and his conquests. Ahead of him would come uh, his soldiers, his victorious soldiers. Ahead of him would come his captives, the, uh, the, the conquered chieftains and kings of, of other nations. Ahead of him would come all the prisoners and, the, and all the trophies of, of war, all the spoils of war. And at the end would come the general himself in a chariot with a great uh, wreath of laurel, a crown of laurel held over his head as the adoring crowds of the city praised him for his great victories. Perhaps the most famous example of such a triumph uh, took place after Paul writing uh, when uh, Titus returned to Rome having conquered Jerusalem and the famous uh, arch in Rome um, celebrates that, that triumph. And Paul says there is a triumph, triumphal procession that is making its way through the world right now because Christ is the victorious general who has conquered all the powers of, of evil. And his, we are now caught up in his triumphal procession through the world. That is what is happening uh, behind and through everything that Christians have been involved in across the centuries in, in witness and in service uh, across the world. We are not there actually by our own free choice. We are the captives in this procession. We, are, we have been conquered. We have been overwhelmed by the power of Christ. We have been overwhelmed by his love, by his victory on the cross. And we have been taken in as captives in his processional uh, triumph. That is how Paul sees it. That is where we are. We are those who have been caught up by the victory of Christ on the cross by which all the powers of, of darkness have been conquered and broken.
and we are swept into it. There's another lovely image here um, where it was practice uh, during these triumphs that incense would be burnt and the petals of flowers in vast quantities would be thrown over the, uh, the, over the procession so that as the troops and as the captives walked and as the chariots proceeded, they would be crushed and an aroma, a fragrance would rise up, incense and the fragrance of flower petals to the honor of the general. So, Paul says, as Christ's procession, his triumphal procession makes its way through the world, an aroma arises. An aroma uh, of incense to God arises. And to some it's the aroma of life because they've been made captive by Christ and they've discovered the freedom that only he can give. So for some, and for us, it's an aroma of life. To others who reject, resist, and are still his enemies. It is an aroma of death. So, can the cross be victory? Is there a victory of the cross? Yes, there is, my brothers and sisters. There is this strange contradiction in the cross that the, the movement down to death and destruction, the, death down, the journey down to betrayal, and brutality, cruelty, and crucifixion is actually a journey to the very place where victory is made. And we, by God's grace, have been swept into Christ's triumphal procession, a procession that will continue through the ages till he comes again. Let's take time just to absorb some of that colossal stuff. I, I, I speak it and I'm still absorbing it. I, I believe this is the gospel. I believe this is what scripture teaches and yet I'm still struggling to absorb it. I try to find words for it but I'm still trying to make it my own. I'm still trying to somehow change my, my, my living and my view of my worldview to, to take it in line with this. This is such a monumental remaking of what it is to, to live uh, human lives and to live lives of discipleship that it, it takes time to absorb. So let's have a time of silence just for a few minutes. I invite you to be still in the presence of God and just to rehearse before him uh, some of those things we've said. And I'll guide us in just a minute or two in prayer. These are the words of a well-known hymn of an earlier age, which we don't sing much now, but they capture this wonderfully well. Hymn of a man called George Matheson. Make me a captive, Lord, and then I shall be free. Force me to render up my sword and I shall conqueror be. And I want to say 
two things in conclusion. Use the victory, be the fragrance. Ours is the power of the cross. Ours is the power of the blood of Jesus. Ours is the power of the name of Jesus. To use in faith and love, graciousness and generosity. Use the victory. Be the fragrance.